be in Genesis chapter 22, working chronologically through these types and shadows. Uh, we had covered Sodom and Gomorrah last week in Genesis chapter 18 and 19, and now we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 22, and we come to a well-known story in the Bible, uh, Abraham and Isaac, and uh, we have covered some of these points before in sermons, so some of it may not be uh, new to you, but it's always good to just hear the depths of the story, um, look at the details in it, and and see how beautiful the story truly is. And uh, so we pick up in chapter 22, we'll, we'll probably read down to verse 19 at least, we'll go from there, and um, we'll see how far we get along in it tonight. Hopefully we'll be able to finish it all and get all the details in there and and so we can see the truth of God's Word. Okay. Genesis chapter 22. Let's read. It says, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and, and took two of his young men with him and Isaac and his son. He split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father... And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they come to the place of which God had told them. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, for since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that, of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men 
And they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Let's stop there and let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the meaning in this story. And Father, I pray that that we would see that beauty tonight. We could see that this story is pointing to the Son, to your only begotten Son, to who would be the sacrifice that would save the world, all that believe from their sins. Father, we thank you that he is the Lamb, and you did provide. So let us see the beauty. Let us see the truth. Help us tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We see a story here of a father and a son. In the land of Moriah, in a mountain that the story takes place upon. But if you look really, really, really closely, this scene and this story that we find here in Genesis 22 is pointing to a greater father and a greater son. Here we have Abraham and Isaac. But this story would truly be pointing to the eternal Father and the eternal Son. This story is pointing to Christ. And the beauty that we find in this story is truly, uh, it's so amazing. And, And this story screams redemption. This story speaks the love of God. So let's begin to look at this and to see how this story is a type. It's a shadow pointing to Christ We find here in Genesis 22, we start to look at some of the similarities between Isaac and Jesus. And we have to go back just a little bit. We have to go back to to Genesis 18 to really see this. And we have to, uh, when we look at Genesis 18, we find uh, the scene with Isaac. And when we look to the New Testament, we find the same scene uh, speaking of Jesus. But in Genesis 18, verses 10 through 14, we see that Isaac was a child of promise and their births were foretold ahead of time. That it would be a supernatural birth that would bring about Isaac. We know that Sarah was beyond childbearing years. And when the news came that Isaac would be born, you remember that she laughed. Because this birth that that God had promised through Abraham that he would have his own offspring, and through that offspring, Isaac, that this promise would come and that, that he would be the father of many nations. And the, the news comes from God that it will be a son and they will call him Isaac. This is a supernatural birth and it is foretold before Isaac is born. It's told to the parents. It would be Abraham and Sarah. And we find that same similarity when the angel of the Lord came to Mary. That Mary came and made this pro- or Mary had a proclamation made to her. The angel of the Lord came and said that she would have uh, inside of her by supernatural means the eternal Son of God, the Messiah. So both of these births were foretold. We are told that their names were given before birth, and we were told that both of their births were brought about by supernatural means. That's where we begin the story. They were both children uh, uh, that uh, came with a promise. They both were supernatural in their births. And both of their names were foretold and declared before they were born. We we see that as some of the similarities to where this story begins. And then we look at something really interesting as we go back to Genesis 22. I want to draw your attention to verse 2. 
In Genesis 22, verse 2, we read this. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Now, that language might not sound striking to you, and you may think, well, what's the big deal about that? But here we have the term, your son, your only son. Except for we have a problem logistically because Abraham had already had a son. The son that he had was, would have been, we, we find this in the New Testament, that, that that son would be representation of the law and the old covenant, and it would be Isaac who would be the child of the promise. We see this. Two covenants is what it's going to tell us in the New Testament. One is by works and one is by grace and faith. But here, don't overlook that language, because this is the son that has been made by the promise of God. This is the son that is a supernatural means. And now we have this language as Abraham, in reference to Isaac, it is, take now your son, your only son, whom you love. And we find that in the New Testament, we don't have to think about this too hard because we know that there's only one son of God. There's only one only begotten, and it is Jesus. They are both declared as only sons, as this language would be pointing us forward to the true meaning, the true substance of the story, which would be Christ. And it says that, uh, that it is his son, his only son, to whom he loves. And we know that not only did Abraham love his son Isaac, but how many times have we in the last months talked about the love of the father upon the son? If from all eternity past, before the foundation of the world, when there was nothing but the Godhead, we find that the Father was loving the Son. And I'm very tempted to just tell you again that if you're a believer in Christ, that that same love that the Father had upon the Son, John 17 tells us that same love is given to His people. Those whom He has written in the Lamb's book of life before the world was, has called to Himself by mercy and grace alone. That's the same love extended to His elect. But here we have your son, your only son, whom you love. We see this in Abraham. Oh, but we see it more fulfilled in the Son of God and the Eternal Father. The only begotten whom the Father loved. This is the scene of the story. You start to see these beautiful details come out. And they were loved by their fathers. And we see that here they're going to go to the land of Moriah and offer there on the mountain to which that God would tell them to have this sacrifice to take place. What's interesting here is this, is that we find that this land, we see other mentions of it in the Old Testament. Uh, we find it in 1 Chronicles. So I'm going to turn there. And uh, if you're looking for 1 Chronicles, the best way to find it is you go to 2 Chronicles and just go the, the book in front of it. Easiest way to find it. That doesn't help much, I'm sure. First Chronicles chapter 21. Let me say this while you're finding that. Not only were they considered as only sons, not only were they loved by the Father, but they were also mocked and ridiculed by the family and people. We see that there's a mention here in Genesis 21 that uh, Ishmael had mocked Isaac. And then we go to the New Testament in Galatians chapter 4, verse 29, and we see the language, how it tells us that what that means. And I'll read this really quick. Keep your fingers there in 1 Chronicles. But it says, 
But at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So that is Ishmael making fun, mocking Isaac. And it makes a reference that it is that one who's in the flesh persecuting and mocking the one who's in the spirit. And we find that Jesus was mocked not only uh, in his earthly ministry all the time. Hey, he's got a demon. Hey, he's of uh, of the devil. Hey, he's a false uh, witness. He's a false teacher. All the mocking. But we find that mocking really take its climax when we find it on the cross. And we find it before the cross. You remember when they would put the purple robe on him and and bow the knee to him and, and put the crown of thorns on him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. They mocked him there. They mocked him on the cross when they said, hey, if you're who you say you are, bring yourself down. Not only was Isaac mocked by those of the flesh, we find that that those of the flesh or those who are not born again were mocking the eternal Son of God. And even today, we as Christians who are born of the Spirit and in the Spirit, we find that we're persecuted and mocked by those who are in the flesh. That continues on even today, but don't miss that note as well, that it was the one in the flesh not of the Spirit, that was, he was mocking the one in the Spirit. And uh, we find that carry along with Christ in his life, in his death, and even with those who are in union with him today. So back to First Chronicles chapter 21, we find this in verse 18. It says, Then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David, that David should go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at the word of Gad, which he spoke in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan turned back and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him and with him hid him themselves. And Ornan was, the thresh, was threshing wheat. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and said, David and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and prostrated himself before David with his face to the ground. Then David said to Ornan, Give me the site of this threshing floor, that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. For the full price you shall give it to me, that the plague uh, may be restrained from my people. Ornan said to David, Take it for yourself, and let my lord the king do what is good in his sight. So I will see the oxen for the burnt offerings and the threshing. I will give the oxen for burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for wood, and the wheat for the grain offerings I'll give it all. It says, But King David said to Ornan, No, but I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord or offer a burnt offering which costs me nothing. So David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. Then David built an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And he called to the Lord and he answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded the angel, he put the sword back in his sheath. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he offered sacrifice there. For the tabernacles of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness and on the burnt offerings, were in the high place at Gibeon at that time. But David could could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was terrified by the sword of the angel of the Lord. And you say, what's the point of that? Well, we read in verse 1 of the next chapter, Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. Say, well, I still don't get the point of this. Well, we have to turn and we have to go to 2 Chronicles here. And we find why that's so important. 
We just read a transaction that took place in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verses 18 through 30. David goes and buys this land from Ornan the Jebusite. And you say, well, what? <laughs> we've, we've strayed away. How is this talking about Abraham and Isaac? Because you just saw a transaction which would take such significance in the history of redemption. 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, we find this. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. So the place that we just read that David went and purchased this land, that would be the place in the land of Moriah, and that would be the place that the temple would be built to worship God. So when we look at the temple that we see of the, of the sacrifices and the holy of holies and the high priest, and all that we see that the Old Testament points to the temple, we find that it takes place in the land of Moriah on the place that David purchased in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, 18-30. So we find Moriah already holds special significance in the Old Testament because it's the place where the temple in that land, in that area, that would be where the temple of God would be placed. And we know that the temple in the Old Testament is pointing to Christ. Everything in the temple is pointing to Christ. Everything. The candlesticks and, and the showbread and the, and the table of incense and the, the veil and the holy of holies and the ark of the covenant and everything leading up into that is pointing to Christ. It was made specifically pointing to Christ. And now we find where this story takes place in Genesis 22 between Abraham and Isaac. In this area of Moriah will be the same area that the temple of God will lay upon years later. Isn't that beautiful? And we know that it is Christ who is the true temple. He entered into the, the eternal glories of heaven. He went into the holy of holies himself to make that sacrifice as he is our mercy seat. And we know that his body's referred to as the temple because he tells us that in John chapter 2, verse 19, where he says, destroy this body, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up again on the third day. And we find that the temple was a place of sacrifice, a place of worship to God. And we know that here we've already read that there will be a sacrifice provided. It will be the temple, the body of Christ, it will be that sacrifice. I just think that's beautiful. The depths of the scripture. So when we look at Genesis 22, we look at the land of Moriah in this area where this scene is taking place at. We know that the temple that God had ordered and ordained to build where his worship and the sacrifices and all the things associated with the temple pointing to him, this is the area where it would take place. There's significance in Genesis 22 for that reason and much more. And we know that the temple and all the things were pointing to Christ. Again, sacrifices were made there. He's the true sacrifice. He's the true high priest. His body was the curtain that was torn. He is the mercy seat of the Holy of Holies. It's on the Ark of the Covenant. You see all this pointing. It's also types and shadows. We'll get to that eventually. That in the temple, it's pointing to Christ. But I just think it's beautiful that here, that this story of Abraham and Isaac, where he would go to sacrifice his son, is the same area to where the temple of God would lay. 
in the years upcoming after this story. That's not an accident. That is an amazing, amazing fact that gives this story even more depth and beauty. And then we find that in verse 3 on, it says that they began to rise early in the morning and saddled his donkey, took two men with him, and Isaac his son. I find that interesting. That What would Isaac ride? If we look at this from a, from a, a bigger picture, we're going to look that Abraham would represent here the father, and, and we know that Isaac is going to represent the son, Christ. And I find it no mistake, and I think it's absolutely amazing, that what animal did Isaac ride up to the place of his sacrifice? We find that it was a donkey. Not only is it the place where the temple would be, not only were they only sons, not only were they loved by the Father, their, their, their births pre-spoken uh, of, their names pre-given, both mocked, but here they are riding on donkeys before their sacrifice. We know that Christ rides in on that triumphal uh, day into Jerusalem. And we know that that was prophesied in Zechariah 9.9. And we know that the, the symbol of that and the beauty of that is that, he, that the, the kings and the conquering kings would ride in on horses and they would be of power. But he was the Prince of Peace and he was coming in this humble mission to do as the Father had commanded him to do. And so here we find that Christ rides into Jerusalem leading up to the place. And where's the first place he goes? He goes to the temple. That's a beautiful thing that we find. And here, leading up to the sacrifice, we find that Isaac is seated on a donkey. It says on the third day, verse 4, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from the distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. And I and the lad will go over there. And don't miss this. Listen to this. And we will worship and return to you. Isn't that interesting? That God has commanded him to offer his son. We've got the tools to do it. We've got the fire. We've got the knife. And before they even go upon their journey, Abraham says, guys, you stay here. Me and my son are going to go. And we're going to come. We're going to go worship there. And then we're going to come back. Let me say this before we move on. Worship requires sacrifice. All through the Bible, you will find worship and sacrifice linked together. We know that when even Noah got off of the ark, what did he do? He built an altar and he sacrificed to God in worship. And then we look at the, the temple and the tabernacle that we see so frequently explained in the Old Testament. That was the place where the worship of God was centered at. That's the place where they would come and worship. And what took place at the temple and the tabernacle? Sacrifice. It would be sacrifice linked to worship that we find all through the Old Testament. And here, isn't it ironic and, and beautiful and so true that he says, we're going up to the place of sacrifice. And he says, we're going to worship. Again, sacrifice and worship linked. And you say, well, does that still ring true to us today? It sure does. But we're not offering animal sacrifices. What kind of sacrifice is our proper service of worship? Well, we find that in Romans chapter 12. When Paul tells us this, in verse 1 of chapter 12. And I love chapter 12. It begins with therefore. 
And you know that, I, again, some man put chapter 12 right there because there was not a chapter 12 when Paul, uh, this was written. And what is the therefore therefore? It is linking everything that Paul has just said. And the first 11 chapters of Romans are high, weighty theological truths. You cover everything. Total depravity. You cover uh, inability of man. You cover election, predestination. You talk about Israel. You talk about the mercies of God. No condemnation, justification. All of this is in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. And then we come to chapter 12. And the way that we described it when we were preaching through it is this. The first 11 chapters are the vertical. They are, they are God to, down to man. It is how we are right with God. It is the theological weight that we find in the first 11 ver- chapters. It's the vertical. And then in chapter 12, it starts with therefore. In light of what you've just read, in light of all this theology, now we turn it to the horizontal. How do we live this out? How do we walk this out? And here's what he says. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Again, you cannot get away from the biblical truth that worship and sacrifice are linked together. We find it in the tabernacle, we find it in the temple, and now as Christ has been the fulfillment of all the Old old Covenant and all the, the sacrifices, as He's the true sacrifice, now our worship to God, He says, is our sacrifice of our life to Him. We offer that. We come and bring that on the altar, if you will. We sacrifice our being, who we are, in service to God. And when we sacrifice our bodies, that is our spiritual service of worship. He also will tell us in Hebrews that we're to bring our sacrifice of praise. Again, worshiping God. It's a sacrifice that we bring because here's the deal. There's times you don't want to praise God, I'm sure, by your feelings and your emotions and life circumstances. Sometimes it's not what you want to do, but you sacrifice because He's worthy. You bring that upon the altar and you give them the praise He's worthy of because He's always worthy. That's why theology is so important. Because God's, if you remember God's intrinsic glory, who He is never changes. So He's always worthy of that high worship and glory. But sometimes our ascribed glory, the glory we give Him, varies. But the more you know about Him, the more you know who He is, the more your ascribed glory will be consistent. But again, here they are going up to worship, and He links that with sacrifice. If you want to show worship to God, not only is it in our praise, in our songs, in our obedience, but it's also in how we present our bodies as a living sacrifice to Him every day of our lives in commitment and obedience to Him. And then when we gather to worship, who do we worship? We worship God and we worship the Son and, and He is the true sacrifice. Our worship must be centered around the true sacrifice. If it's centered around man, then it's not true worship. It has to be around the sacrifice. True worship and sacrifice go hand in hand. You want to find true worship? You will always have it linked with sacrifice. I just wanted to draw your attention to that. I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. 
Let's stop there. Not only did Isaac ride in on a donkey, Jesus rides in on the donkey. We find a very telling detail in that verse. We look at Isaac and don't miss the fact that the wood was laid upon Isaac's back. It would be Isaac who would carry the wood to his sacrifice, the place to where he was intended to be sacrificed. The father had laid that wood upon him. He would carry that wood up to the place of his sacrifice on a mountain in Moriah that the Lord would show. And no, we, we know the similarities there. That the wrath that we poured out upon the Son came from the hands of the Father. And we know that Christ had the wood laid upon His back as He would take the cross and carry it all the way to the place of His sacrifice. This is a beautiful story. This story takes place roughly 2,000 years before Christ would come. But you see the details of this story. They're pointing to the greater Son. They're pointing to Christ. The Father had laid the wood upon His Son, and, and Isaac carried the wood on His back up to the place to where the sacrifice was to take place. And we see that it would be God the Father who would pour out His wrath upon the Son, and it would be the Son who would carry that wooden cross up to His sacrifice on the mountain to which God would show him. That's beautiful. That's an amazing detail. And he took the, in his hand the fire and the knife. And we find that the father has the fire and he has the knife. What's the significance of that? It's the son who's carrying the cross or the wood. Christ carries the cross. But here we have the father carrying the instrument that would bring about the death. We just mentioned it, but it would be the father who would pour out the wrath. It would be Abraham who was to inflict the final blow. It would be the, the father who would there sacrifice his son. It would see, we would see that in the New Testament. We would find that it would be the father who would crush the eternal son, the only begotten. That's why he was carrying the knife, because it would be the father in the form of Abraham here who would be the one who was to pour out this sacrifice and kill the son. And here we have in the New Testament that the wrath of the father would be the wrath that was placed upon the son. Let's read Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 starts out with, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now that should seem somewhat familiar to us because when we were in John chapter 12, that was quoted back to us. The apostle John is quoting that. He also quotes the other passage from Isaiah, Isaiah 6. You remember that when he said that Isaiah saw Jesus when he spoke of him? And we find that we see Jesus being shown in Isaiah 6 high and lifted up. And we also have Isaiah 53 quoted in John 12. But this is the suffering servant chapter. This is speaking about the son. Listen to this. And then ask yourself, 
Who's the one pouring out the wrath? And then you ask yourself, is any one of us here tonight worthy to have the eternal Son of God suffer this on our behalf? He who, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. When we get to the book of Job, that verse will come back into our attention. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He who was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with the wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And then we come to verse 10. Who's holding the knife in Genesis 22? It's the father. It's Abraham who will bring, that is planning to bring that blow down upon his son. And we find that the wrath that Jesus faces on the cross was from the hand of the Father. It would be the wrath of the Father upon His Son being poured out upon the cross. Listen to verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush Him, putting Him to grief. It, if He would render Himself as a guilt offering, He will see His offspring, He will prolong His days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death, he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded. For the transgressors, it would be the Father who would pour out His wrath upon the Son. That's why Abraham's holding the knife in this scene, because it's representative of the Father pouring out His wrath, crushing the Son upon the cross to which He was pleased to do. You know what? When you read that passage of all that he took upon himself like a lamb before his, the ones who would slaughter him, 
all this anguish, all this that would await him, all this uh, that would be placed upon him and he'd be crushed by the wrath of the Father. Doesn't that make the words that we read in Genesis 14 at the very end of that even take more beautiful context? You remember what he said? Knowing all this awaits, what does he say? Get up and let us go. I love the Father. The Father loves me. The Father will pour out His wrath upon me. But why does He do that? So He can satisfy the wrath of those whom the Father had given Him. It's truly remarkable. And even as the Father is pouring out His wrath upon the Son, what does the Son say? After it all is over, as He's dying and in His last breaths, what does He say? Into your hands, I commit my spirit. You know what he's saying? Even though you slay me, even though you crush me, I trust you. I love you. And I've came to do everything you've commanded me to do, even to death. Can we say the same thing about God? Even though he slay me, I will trust him. Even though if this year is the worst year you've ever had in your life, can you say, even though I trust Him? This is what the Son has done upon the Father. And think about this just for a moment. When we read into more of this story, we find that, and we'll go ahead and talk about this now, and we'll get to it in a little bit, but when they get up to this place, again, there's a little difference of opinion, but the majority of reputable people and scholars that study this tell us that they don't believe that Abraham or Isaac was a little bitty boy, but could have been in his teenage to early 20s. He's carrying this big pile of wood and he's carrying it up a mountain. And, and most will say that they believe he was late teens, in his 20s, possibly somewhere around in there. And you say, well, what's the significance of that? He could have overtaken Abraham. Abraham was an old man. He was 100 when he was born. When Isaac was born. So here we have Abraham well in his hundreds. We have Isaac possibly in his prime. And we find that the father binds the son, ties him to the wood for sacrifice. But do you know what that means? That Isaac had to trust his father. He could have put up a fight. He could have said, don't think so. He could have ran. But you know what he did? He trusted the Father. And you know what I believe Isaac did? I believe he willingly laid his body down upon that altar. If that doesn't scream the Son of God, I don't know what does. Because when we look forward into the New Testament, what is one of the reasons that the Father loves the Son? John 10 tells us that because he willingly lays his life down for the sheep. You remember when he came to the garden and he says, if there's any other way, let it pass, but not my will, yours be done. And he willingly laid down his life as the father would pour out his wrath. He willingly laid down his life for this sacrifice. And this is what we find in the story of Abraham and Isaac. And not only does he carry the wood to this sacrifice, not only is the father going to be the one who brings about this, this blow to bring the sacrifice to fruition, 
but he willingly lays down his life. He willingly trusts his father Abraham, and we find that exonified, and we find it in its full fulfillment when the eternal Son of God lays down his life in obedience and trust to the Father. It's truly a remarkable scene that we find here in this story. Look at verse 7. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? We've got everything, but we don't, we don't have a sacrifice. I told you I skipped ahead a little bit. We're, we're up to that point, but now we're going back to leading up to that point of sacrifice. You've got the knife, and we've got the fire, and I'm carrying the wood, but where's this? Sacrifice. And in verse 8, if you could summarize one with one word, verse 8, you would find the answer in the summary to verse 8 would be Jesus. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. And then they came to the place of which God had told them, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. So here we have the sacrifice getting ready to take place. It is the sun upon the wood. The sound is bound. We see that Christ is nailed to the cross. He's on the wood. The sacrifice is in place. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Again, this is the wrath of the father. This is what's represented here. The wrath of God the father upon the son. This would be the fulfillment of this. This is the shadow pointing to that. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, and we find something interesting here. We find a repetition of a name. You know the importance of that. It's an intimate thing. When we see, he says, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. I want you to picture this scene. Stop just for a moment. Put yourself here. We look at it and we're like, hey, this was 4,000 years ago. And we know he didn't kill him. So what, what's the big deal? I want you to put yourself in Abraham's shoes just for a second. What did God promise him in the preceding chapters of this? I, he said, I promise you that you'll be the father of many nations. And through your seed, this will take place. He says, I'm going to promise you a son. Okay? He's talking about Isaac. And now this promise that God has promised, you remember that God has swore to this promise by himself. Genesis 15, he cuts the carcasses. He goes through it. he swears by himself saying, if I don't keep this promise, then let it be to me like these animals, let me die. He swears by himself that it would be through his son, Isaac, that this promise would come through. And now he's, on an, he's got his son on the altar, the, the son who was to be the one promised to keep this, this promise. And he's here. And the son to which this promise would come through to him is on the altar. God, you promised me 
you promised me, and now I'm here, and I'm so close, and if I kill my son, your promise is gone. We don't put ourselves in that situation, do we? That close. Oh, but he swore by himself. God swore by himself. There's no one he can swear greater by. And God cannot lie. That is the promise that is the anchor for our soul. And as he gets ready to come down to slay his son, Abraham, Abraham, he says, here I am. Do not stretch out against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham loved God. And what was the way that we see here that Abraham loved God? He did not spare his son, his only son. You say, that's the... Who in the world would do that? Who would, who would go and willingly sacrifice their son to please God? I think the deeper question is, how in the world could the eternal father love fallen rebel creatures so much, nothing they've done but by mercy and grace alone, that he would not spare his son, his only son, but send him to die in our place. You see the story unfolding. Abraham, you've not spared your son, your only son. And God the Father showed his love by not sparing his son, his only begotten son, but rather sending him, crushing him. And the son showed his love for the father by being obedient to him all the way to the death on the cross. You ever stop and think about that? that the eternal Father loved all those whom He chose before the foundation of the world so much that He did not withhold His only begotten Son, but sent Him and crushed Him. That's a love that we can't comprehend. This is what this, this story is screaming, Christ. It's screaming the cross. It's screaming that God does provide a lamb. He did provide the sacrifice. It's the only begotten son. And then we look on. It says this. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son, Verse 14, Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Now, let's just talk about the location just briefly. What's the point of, why, why, why here? Of all the places in overseas, in this area, of all the places that this story could take place, why is it here? Well, we have a couple options. One, it could be just a coincidence. Just the way it happened, I guess a, there was a maverick molecule that got away and lo and behold, here we are. We're in the land of Moriah or it has a purpose. I'll let you decide. If you pick the first one, I'll talk to you after church. 
This is purposeful. And this is intentional. We know, we read this earlier, this land of Moriah was purchased by David. And it would be the place where the temple of God would be placed in the future after the story. But you know what else this was in the vicinity of? This would be the area that this promise truly takes place. Here, in this area, we are told, it says, the Lord will provide in the mountain of the Lord. It will be provided. It is this place. It is in this area. It is in this location that the Lord will provide the lamb. In this area of Moriah is also the area to which 2,000 years after this story, the eternal Son of God would have a cross put on His back. And He would willingly march to the place of His sacrifice on Mount Calvary and would be the true Lamb, would be the true sacrifice that this story is pointing to. And the Father did not spare His Son, His only begotten Son, but in this area, 2,000 years later, He would crush His Son, who would be the sacrifice to bring us peace with God. Not only was this the area of the temple, but in this area, in this vicinity, upon Mount Calvary, it would be this area to which this story would find its greatest fulfillment 2,000 years after this event happened, to which Jesus would march with His wood on His back to willingly be bound to the cross and willingly be slain by the Father, suffering the wrath for you and I. It's in this area it's at this location, it's here, it's in the land of Moriah that this takes place outside of Jerusalem, upon the mountain. This is where in this vicinity it takes place. God does not lie. It would be this place that God would provide the lamb. Isn't that beautiful? The story is pointing to the eternal son and the eternal father 2,000 years later. Verse 15, then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. See something interesting there, don't you? By myself I have sworn. Where have we heard that? Genesis 15. When Abram goes up to this, he's like, how am I going to know that this promise that you promised me is true? And he says, look up to the stars. So will be your descendants. But how will I know? And again, we won't go through it all again, but that's when he says, you want me to show you my promise? He takes the animals, he cuts them in half, and then in this theophany, he goes through them, and he's swearing by himself of this promise that he gave Abraham. And here it's, re, it's restated. Hey, it is by myself that I swore. I told you it would be through a son that this promise would come. And even if it's almost to the seconds before it looks like it's hopeless, I've swore by myself. And I can't lie. I've swore by myself, Abraham, and now you are seeing that with your eyes. Because 
you have, have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of, of the heavens and the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gates of their enemies. Boy, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? That sounds like the Abrahamic covenant that he just promised him in the preceding chapters. We find it here beautifully said that God tells Abraham that he swore by himself. He reiterates what he's already told him in the previous chapters of Genesis. And this promise is immutable. It's the anchor for the soul. And God reinforces this promise that he made to Abraham This speaks to the covenant. But we find that this promise is linked to offspring, to a son. And that son in the Old Testament is Isaac. But as we see in this story, Isaac is pointing to someone greater, isn't he? Isaac is pointing to the eternal son. And we find that the ultimate fulfillment of this promise through a son is found in Christ. Let's read this in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 9. You've heard these verses before, but let's read them in this context. It says this, Romans chapter 9, verse 6. It says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. Do you see how the promise comes through the son? Here it was Isaac, the son that was promised. But the great fulfillment of this offspring and this seed would be the one that Isaac is pointing to here in this story, and it's Christ. Abraham was considered righteous because he believed in the promise of God that he would have a son. And it was through that belief that he was declared righteous. And we are declared righteous by belief in the eternal son. We're children of Abraham by faith. We continue to read. Verse 8. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. We find that it says, For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. Speaking of Isaac, that's how this is the ultimate fulfillment is in Christ. That we are children of faith in Abraham by the faith that we have in the Son of God. We find other verses that mention this in Galatians chapter 3. I'll turn there briefly. Galatians chapter 3. A little bit of reading here, but uh, we don't have to apologize for that, do we? Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 29 says this. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it, has, it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And he does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed. Here's the fulfillment. That is Christ. We have the New Testament telling us that. Paul is telling us that in Chapter 3, verse 16 of Galatians. That seed to which that fulfillment comes. Not seeds, but one. That seed of promise would be Christ. All who believe in that. 
seed, the eternal Son of God, will be righteous by faith. What I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Again, he's promised him this. Why then, or why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Again, talking about the seed. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But the scripture has shut up everything or everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has come, become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. By now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all who, of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is now, neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor free or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to a promise. So we find that it is the promise that was given to Abraham through a son, Isaac. And we find the fulfillment of that promise that a son would come, that seed would be Christ. Isaac is pointing to Christ. And faith in him, faith in Christ, is how we are declared righteous before God. And then I want to bring this to you here in Hebrews chapter 11. And this will get to our last point here as we close this story out. Hebrews chapter 11, we find our verses that we're going to look at in verse 17 through 19. And just in case you're curious and you say, well, is this really a type? Is this really what's going on here? Is there any link to this story? Well, let's listen to what the author of Hebrews says. Hebrews 11, verse 17 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son. Sound familiar? It was he to whom it was said, and in Isaac your descendants shall be called. Verse 19, He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. You say, well, what's that mean? Received him back. What's going on here? He could raise people from the dead. That's it. Well, let's look how this story ends. We've mentioned it before, and again, it'll lead us into our next type in shadow. Don't miss this. We see that, uh, that Isaac was figuratively spoken of as being raised from the dead as a type, and we see Jesus literally raised from the dead, to which uh, we have that union and that hope of our resurrection, not only spiritually, but bodily on the last day. Let's look and see how the story ends. Look at verse 19. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. That's curious. 
Who went up on the mountain? Was Abraham by himself when he went up on the mountain? No, he wasn't. He was with his son. But now we have a reference to Abraham comes back down the mountain and no mention of Isaac. But we know that Isaac had to come down off that mountain. We know he didn't live up there forever. We're going to realize that. So what is the point of leaving this out? What is the point of mentioning that Abraham came down, but Isaac did not? We know that this sacrifice, the scene that is going down here between Abraham and Isaac is foreshadowing. It's pointing to 2,000 years later to which the father would willingly, or would sacrifice his son, would not hold back, would willingly send his son, someone willingly lay down in life. God would provide the sacrifice. What would happen after his death on the cross? Well, he would be buried. And then he would be raised to life. We see that that's what Hebrews was talking about. Isaac was figuratively raised, and we see that Jesus is literally raised. So what happens after his resurrection? Well, he appears on earth for 40 days. And then he's resurrected. He's, uh, he's ascended into the glories of the Father, to the glory to which he had before the world was. I believe that this is what this is alluding to. After the sacrifice, after his death, he was resurrected and he ascended to the Father. And where is he now? Where's the one that Isaac is foreshadowing? Where is he currently at? The Bible says he sits beside the ancient of days, ruling and reigning. And you say, well, well, did we get a mention of Isaac again? Where's he at? Where can we find Isaac? It doesn't say anything more about him after this scene of sacrifice here. Do you know the next time you see Isaac? is when he meets his bride. That's so beautiful. Rebecca will be brought to him. You're going to find the servant of Abraham, I believe is representing the Holy Spirit, goes out and finds a bride for his son and brings that bride to Isaac. I believe this is why that we don't see a mention of Isaac coming down because it's representing the eternal Son of God reigning in glory. And when will be the next time that we see him is when he comes back for his bride. That's the church. That's those whom he willingly laid his life down for. That's the next time we'll see the son. And that's the next time we see Isaac when he meets up with his bride. This is the most, one of the most amazing stories we'll find in the Bible. This is a story about a father and a son. Great love and great trust that we see the father showing as he would give up his son, his only son, to be obedient. This is also, it tells us later in the New Testament that here, this scene is what vindicated Abraham's faith. It showed that he really was righteous and he really was a believer in God. This story is pointing us to something. Something that would happen later. This is a story about a father and a son. But it would be pointing to the eternal father and the eternal son. 
Just picture this scene. Just picture it. They wake up that day. They get on the donkeys. And they start riding to the place to which this scene will take place. And the wood is laid upon the sun. And the sun carries the wood up to the place to sacrifice. And the father binds the son upon the wood. The son willingly lays down his life because he trusts the father. And in this area, 2,000 years after this story takes place, the fulfillment of it comes. Where the eternal son carries the cross in this very area, to the place of sacrifice, willingly lays down His life in obedience and trust to the Father. The Father is the one who pours out His wrath upon the Son. And it would be the Son who would be the sacrifice that's talked about here. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the next time we see the Son, it's when he comes back for the bride. This is truly the love of God that we cannot comprehend. We can't comprehend it. This should leave us in awe and reverence, humility, worship, and praise to God Almighty. He spared nothing as he sent his son, his only begotten son, so that ever who believes in him, all the believing ones shall not perish, but have eternal life. What an amazing story. The location is no accident. The details are no accident. And the story screaming, there's a greater son coming. There's a greater Isaac coming. There's a greater sacrifice coming. Wait 2,000 years. And in this area, the promise that was spoken that day would come to pass as God Himself would provide the Lamb. Oh, it's so good. I hope that when we look at this story, we see it's Christ. We don't try to put ourselves in this story and say this is all about us. This is about Christ. He had to die for us. You want to put ourselves in the story? We're the ones He had to die for because we're that fallen and unworthy and have no righteousness on our own. That's the reason the Father had to send the Son for us. That's where we fall in the story. But if you believe in the Son, remember this, He swore by Himself. And holding on to that promise is the promise that is an anchor for your soul. I hope you can look at this story tonight and you could agree with me on two things. I hope when we look at this, we could say that the Bible is so much better than what we made it. And when we look at this story, we could simply say there's more to the story. Let's pray. Our Father, we are in awe of your word.
your word is speaking to your redemption and the plan of redemption that you have put into place before the world was. Father, we are sorry for all the times that we've read stories like this and made them all about ourselves. Father, let us understand the beauty of the word as, as it points to you. You are the hero in the Bible. The Bible is about you. And Father, when we look at this story, we are in amazement of you in, in this, this shadow of what is going to take place 2,000 years after this story, as in this area, that your son, that you would sin, that you would not spare, that you would sin and it would please you to crush him, that in this area he would carry his cross to the place of sacrifice as this was the plan of redemption. Lord, you love the Son because He willingly laid down His life and the Son loves you and shows that in His obedience to this redemptive work. And Father, we step back and we say, who in the world are we? Who are we that you would not spare your only Son, the one who was in the bosom of the Father before the world was, who are we that you would send your son and not spare him for me? A fallen creature. Father, who am I? But Lord, you are, you are wonderful and you are merciful and you are kind, gracious and loving. And you cannot lie. And Lord, you did provide the true Lamb of God. Your wrath was appeased. And now we can be declared righteous by faith in your Son. Oh, Father, let this story break us. Let us honor you and worship you and to see you more deeply than we ever have. And when we worship, when we see who you really are, we will love you more, all those who are born again. So, Lord, thank you for this. Thank you for your... You're sending the Son and the sacrifice. We give you all the glory. We give you all the honor. And we eagerly await that day to which we see the Son of God and are united with Him in the marriage supper of the Lamb. To you be the glory. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.